Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Church London catch-up service. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a passion to present Jesus to London and would love for you to be part of the adventure. So why not say hello to us by visiting our website manualchurchlondon.org so we can get back to you and say a bit more of a personal hello. Let's get into this. And the reason I get excited about it is because I know that there's gold in there. I know that there's gold in there. So, um, in this genealogy of Jesus, we are shown that, that through the pain and mess of human experience, God is a promise keeper. We are shown that Jesus came from ordinary people for ordinary people. The human ancestry of Jesus with all of its sin and shame and pain and brokenness foreshadows who Jesus has come to save and what he has come to save us from. What the genealogy of Jesus shows us is the sort of people he came to redeem. In this genealogy, we see vulnerable outsiders, people dealing with sexual shame, and people who have made foolish mistakes. And we see all of them having their stories woven into the miracle of the incarnation. The people included in Jesus' family line point to the redemptive power of the incarnation. So, let's read Matthew 1 together and see how many of these names I mess up. Shall we go? Okay, let me take a drink. Okay, Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, messed up a bit, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
So what we're going to... Thanks, mate. So what we're going to do today is we're going to pick out a few of the names in this list and, and drill down and look at what we can learn, right? So first... There are people, like I said before, there are people on this list who I would call vulnerable outsiders. Have you ever felt like you, you don't really fit in? That somehow you, you were different to the people around you, particularly church people? Maybe what you've been through, your, your life experience makes it harder for you to feel like you fit in. I reckon every single person in this room at one time or another has felt like and thought to themselves, I just don't fit in here. I'm not wanted here. Nobody cares if, if I'm here on a Sunday, for example. At one point or another, everyone in this room has felt like an outsider, I reckon, even at church, perhaps even particularly at church, sadly. There are two vulnerable outsiders who are intentionally included in this list. Ruth and Bathsheba, also known as Uriah's wife. That's how she's referred to on this list. And just as an aside, women weren't typically included in genealogies and ancestor lists like this in the first century. Typically, it was so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. Typically, only men were included in these sorts of lists. Five women are included in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. That alone when you're reading scripture, should make us sit up and, and take notice. It should make us question and think about what God is trying to tell us about the nature of the incarnation, the nature of Jesus's family tree by, what, by including these women, right? Not a word of scripture is by accident. These are important things to take notice of. So let's take a look at Ruth's story. You can read Ruth's story in the book of Ruth. Well done. <laughs> Ruth, firstly, is a Moabite. She's a Moabite. That means she is not from the people of God. She instead belongs to a tribe that Israel has often been at war against. And she marries an Israelite man who then dies, leaving her a widow without any children. And rather than return to to, to the Moabite tribe of her ancestry, she decides to stay loyal to her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, even when that means returning to Israel, where she will be considered an outsider, a foreigner, someone who doesn't fit in. And when she's there, her faithfulness to her mother-in-law and her hard work catches the eye of a man named Boaz. And Boaz proposes to her, they are married. They have a son called Obed, who is a direct ancestor of King David. Ruth is a vulnerable outsider, a widow, a foreigner. If anyone could ever legitimately feel like they don't really fit in, it would be her. And yet, here she is in the genealogy of Jesus. Her story has been woven into the story of God sending his son to redeem the world. Ruth's included. Ruth's included. No matter how outside you feel, how much of an outsider you feel, you're not too much of an outsider for God. He loves to include you. He wants to include you. It's like a Bathsheba. She's referred to on this list as Uriah's wife. It says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife 
of Uriah. That's not by accident either. Uriah was a Hittite. Like Ruth, he wasn't from within the people of Israel. He was an outsider who made the people of God his home, yes, but he was a Hittite. He wasn't an Israelite. And when Bathsheba married him, she would have taken on his social status as an outsider. But that description of Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah is also making another thinly veiled point as well, isn't it? It's making it really clear that Bathsheba wasn't David's wife, really. Bathsheba was Uriah's wife. And a lot of us will know the story, right? David, King David, he's up on the roof of his palace when he should be out at war leading his army. He sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing in her own home. He calls for her to come to the palace, has sex with her. She falls pregnant. To cover up the pregnancy, David calls Uriah home from the front so that he can go into his wife and, and things will be covered up. But Uriah is a man of honour. He doesn't go into his wife whilst his brothers are out on the front line. So he, the, David's plan to kind of cover up this sin that he's done fails. David sends Uriah back to the front with an order to put him in the fiercest place of the fighting so that he gets killed. And Uriah dies. David then takes Bathsheba as his own wife, takes her to the palace. We read later on in the story that Bathsheba then loses the baby that she's pregnant with. Bathsheba is a woman who has likely had the social status of an outsider because of who her first husband was. She then experiences this, this sexual encounter with King David, which at the very least you can describe as having a clear imbalance of power. She was a woman an outsider, alone, called to the palace of the king. When her husband was away, king has sex with her, and then her husband dies, and then her baby dies. Bathsheba was a, a vulnerable outsider. What she'd been through in her life, the loss that she'd experienced, her status as, 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 a, as the wife of a foreigner, all those things you might think would stop her being a candidate for being part of God's story. But you'd be wrong. Her story, her pain, her experiences are woven by God into the story of the coming of Jesus, the Son of God. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Jesus, there are no outsiders. No one is a foreigner. No one is too much on the outside. No one has been through too much to have their story woven into the story of redemption that Jesus is writing over all of creation. All are welcomed in. That applies to Ruth, that applies to Bathsheba, it applies to you, and it applies to me. Ruth and Bathsheba as ancestors of Jesus foreshadow the people that he came to save. People on the outside, people carrying hurts and pains, whose stories he wants to redeem, whose stories he wants to weave into his own story. Next, um, let's take a look at the people on the list who would have, have carried something different, who would have carried what, I think when you read this, it's just undeniable, who would have carried 
a sense of sexual shame. It's so distinct in this list. I can't really avoid it. There are people on this list who undeniably would have carried a sense of sexual shame. Sex is a, is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the covenant safety of marriage, where a man and a woman give all of themselves to one another, right? Without fear of rejection or judgment. And in the Christian view of sex, you're not just making yourself physically vulnerable and open to another person. There's a spiritual vulnerability and connection that comes with that as well. You are uniting with that other person. There is a, a connection at a soul level, which is why sex is designed by God to be a powerful way for a husband and a wife to experience and communicate love and connection and priority. However, when you take sex outside of the covenant safety of marriage, because it's so powerful, it has an unrivaled ability to make us feel ashamed. And that shame can feel like a, a weight around our neck that we carry around or that, that we allow to disconnect us from God and from his people from the church. The next two people on this list of Jesus' ancestors will have undoubtedly lived with some level of sexual shame. First is Rahab. You can read her story in Joshua chapter two, where she is just simply described as a prostitute. Her story goes something like this. The people of God have been told to go and, and capture the walled city of Jericho. So they send over spies to check out the land. The spies somehow uh, find themselves at the house of the prostitute Rahab who lives in Jericho. Rather than give them up to the king of Jericho who, who knows, found out that these spies are there. Um, Rahab is, helps these people, helps these spies escape. Um, and when the people of God eventually take the city of Jericho, they arrange for Rahab and her family to, to join them, to, to be saved, to be exited, to be evacuated from, from Jericho and saved and become part of the people of God. Rahab joins the people of God, has a son called Boaz, who ends up marrying Ruth. Second, there's Tamar. Tamar, whose story, honestly, is like something out of EastEnders, dialed up to eleven. Like if anybody ever says that the Bible is boring, take them to Genesis 37. It's like crazy stuff. Tamar married a man named um, Ur. Great name, Ur. Just about sums this guy up. Ur was the son of Judah, the father of the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Ur, Tamar's husband, he was, he was a bad guy. He was so wicked that God put him to death. I don't know what you have to be doing for God just to say, you know what, I am pulling the plug. But I reckon it was pretty bad. And that leaves poor old Tamar a widow. And back then it was customary if a woman was left a widow and without a child for the brothers of her dead husband to go and sleep with her in order to produce an heir. And that was so that they could continue the family line, so that they could provide security for the widow, so that any inheritance that was due for the dead brother, the dead man, would then remain within the family. And Ur's brother was named Onan. Onan was told to go and do, perform this duty for Tamar, for his dead brother. He was told to do that by Judah. Um, but when Onan went to go and do this, 
He um, excused the, the explicit nature. It's in scripture, so I don't really have to apologize. Onan spilled his semen on the ground so as not to get her pregnant. Basically, he was just using her, right? Imagine that as a relational dynamic. He was just using her. He was a wrong one. And then Onan dies. And then Judah, the father of these brothers, sends Tamar away. But Tamar comes up with a plan to get herself some children. So she disguises herself as a prostitute and goes to a place that she knows that Judah will be shearing his sheep. Judah, the father of the tribe, sees her at the side of the road, thinks that she is a prostitute, thinks, okay, I'm going to go into her, goes into her, has sex with her, gets her pregnant. He doesn't have any money, so he leaves with her his staff and his cord and his signet, which are kind of identifiers of who he is as a kind of down payment. And later, when Tamar is revealed to be pregnant, Judah, in like the most incredible act of double standards potentially ever, tries to get her burned to death for her sexual immorality. But at the last minute, she pulls out, she reveals the man who made her pregnant was the one who, who owned this staff, this cord, and this signet, which is, of course, everybody knows is Judah. I told you, it's worse than these standards, right? These women... These women have have messy pasts. They know what it is to carry a sense of sexual shame. They know what it is to be used. They know what it is to be rejected. They did things with their bodies that are, are far from a Christian sexual ethic. And yet, here they are. In the very genealogy of Jesus. As ancestors of Jesus. And as ancestors of Jesus, they are... As they are there as foreshadows of the people that through the incarnation, Jesus has come to redeem and save. If you have ever allowed your past, particularly your sexual past, to make you feel isolated from God or isolated from the church, if it is this ever-present shadow that makes you feel so ashamed, so isolated, so wanting to keep everybody else at arm's length, so wanting to keep God at arm's length, if that's you, then take note of the names of Tamar and Rahab on this list. Sexual sin and shame should not speak a louder word over your life than the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus. It should not speak a louder word over your life than the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. When we truly repent, when we turn away from sin, when we run away from sin and run toward God, our story is woven into the story of redemption that Jesus is writing over all of creation. That's the miracle of the incarnation. That's the miracle of the incarnation. Finally, finally, there are, there are people on this list who have, have just right royally messed up. They've just made foolish mistakes. They've massively affected their lives, massively affected thousands of people's lives. Let's take a look at two more names on the list. The first one is Rehoboam. Rehoboam. He was the son of Solomon and the grandson of King David. 
when Rehoboam came to the throne, Israel wasn't in that great a state. The people weren't that happy. And the men who advised his father, so the advisors to King Solomon, told him to reduce the tax burdens on the people, to speak kindly to them, to win them, go on a bit of a charm offensive, do a bit of marketing, like win these people over Rehoboam. Rehoboam decided to ignore and get rid of the advisors that served his father, King Solomon. Remember, King Solomon was the wisest man to have ever lived. And these guys were advisors to King Solomon. You probably don't want to just be like putting them to the side so quickly, I would have thought. But Rehoboam didn't, didn't have time for that. And so instead he appointed a load of his mates and listened to his mates. Anyway, listened to his mates and his mates told him to lay an even heavier burden on the people and to rule with an iron fist so that they knew who was boss, so that they knew where the authority was. Literally, he tells the people that he will discipline them with whips and scorpions. If Rehoboam was presenting his plan in a 21st century modern boardroom, it may well be described as a a bold move. (laughs) Perhaps, unsurprisingly, this didn't go well. In fact, under Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel went through a massive rebellion and was split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Literally, the the kingdom is split in two. Listening to your stupid mates and splitting your kingdom isn't an A-star day. Another another name on the list is Jeconiah. Jeconiah. We don't know much about his reign, apart from the fact that what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, not a great place to start, He was the penultimate king of Israel. He reigned for three months in Jerusalem, just three months, before Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded, took him prisoner and carried him off, basically. Carried him off to Babylon, where he, you know, kept kept at Nebuchadnezzar's pleasure. Not what you'd call a stellar record. These men, they messed up. They made costly mistakes, bad decisions, even sometimes in the face of good advice. Rehoboam had great advice, but he decided to ignore it. And yet here they are in the genealogy of Jesus. Their story has been woven into the story of redemption, the story of the incarnation. Rehoboam split the kingdom of Israel in two. Jeconiah was king when the people of God were carried off into captivity. And here they are listed as the ancestors of Jesus. Maybe mistakes that you've made are part of your story. Maybe you've made mistakes and the consequences of those mistakes are are out there for everyone to see. Jesus is in the business of taking our mistakes and weaving them into his story of redemption. Jesus is in the business of overwhelming our mistakes with his grace. There is nothing, there is nothing too big for him to deal with. There is nothing too big for him to deal with. Sometimes we try and carry it. Sometimes we try and like hide it. That's not what God wants for us. There is no mistake too big for Jesus. There is no mistake too big for Jesus. In this genealogy of Jesus, we are shown that through the miracle of the incarnation, incarnation, Jesus redeems the pain, 
and the mess and the mistakes of human experience. That's what this list of names demonstrates to us. In this genealogy of Jesus, the the miracle of the incarnation points beyond itself to tell us why Jesus came and importantly, who he came for. We are shown that Jesus came from ordinary, messy people. For ordinary, messy people. If you are someone who has ever felt like an outsider, Jesus came for you. If you are someone who has ever struggled with shame because of their sexual past, Jesus came for you. If you are someone who has made mistakes in their life, if you are someone who has made mistakes in their life, Jesus came for you. The offer of the incarnation is that Jesus was born as a man so that he could die on a cross and redeem all of humanity. By coming as a baby and dying in our place, he offers us a redemption and a hope that will never be taken away. He offers to take our stories and weave them into his story and weave them into his story. I want to close today by taking communion together. Um, So if you've got your little pods, grab them. The first verse of this genealogy that I read out today said, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham because Abraham was promised by God that through him, all the nations on earth would be blessed. The promise to Abraham that all the nations on earth would be blessed is fulfilled in Jesus. All who trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus are woven into God's story of redemption. If you're a Christian here today, this is what has happened to your life. That's what has happened to your life. And when we eat the bread and the wine together, we remember what it cost for Jesus to make that happen. What it cost Jesus to make that happen. We eat this bread and we drink this wine and we celebrate our redemption that has been won at the cross, that he has woven us into his story. Amen. Let me just pray and we'll we'll take this bread and wine together. Father, thank you for, for sending your son. Thank you that all of this list of names foreshadows the people that you came to save. All of our mess, all of our mistakes. And Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for, your, for the fact that your son died on a cross in our place, that his body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be redeemed, so that we can know hope, so that we at this Christmas time can celebrate the coming of the hope of the world, the hope of the world. And we know that. And we know that our story now, as we eat this bread and drink this wine, has been woven into your story of hope. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we praise you. Amen. Amen. Amen.